You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Um, so don't worry, there are no, like, weird changes happening. Mike got COVID, okay? He's okay. He had a rough couple of days, and he was ready to, to come in here this morning and uh, get after it. And I said, how are you feeling? He's like, not great. Um, have you tried to sing? I hear the coronavirus attacks your lungs. <laughs> um, so anyway, so he has... Uh, the Sunday off to rest. Um, We didn't like kick him out of the church or anything like that. So Um, so I I want you you guys as the congregation to hear me say this, I guess. Uh, This this vote actually really matters. Like obviously it matters to me, but it should matter a great deal to you. And and what I mean by that is not, uh, hey, show up and vote. What I mean is spend the next week in like real prayer Really ask the Spirit, God, what do you want? Um, that's my heart. I want that to be your heart as well. I think it would be really easy for us uh, to go, yeah, Brandon's awesome, or a loser, or whatever, and vote based on our preferences and our likes and dislikes. And I don't want us to be that type of church. I don't want us to be that, those types of Christians. And so we take some time to pray before that vote uh, next week. Spend some time in the presence of Jesus and asking him, what do you want? This is your church, we're your people. Where are you leading us? Um, So if you're new here to Redemption, glad you're here. I'm Brandon, Uh, I'm one of the pastors. Um, If you would like to, uh, to have coffee with me or one of our other pastors, you can grab one of those cards in front of you in the seat back and let us know that you're here. We won't bug you. We're not going to send you a bunch of junk mail or anything weird. We just want to have an opportunity to get to know you, to hear your story, to answer any questions about who we are as a church that you might have. So um, we're thankful that you're here worshiping with us this morning. We are in the book of Acts, you could really call it the the gospel of Acts, because one of the things that we've seen is that the life and work of Jesus does not end in the gospel of Luke, that it very much continues in the book of Acts, and is very much continuing in our stories here and now. And one of the reasons we're addressing this is obviously, as a church, we're going through some transition, but probably even more importantly, to so many of you, because I know so many of your stories, is there's been some real damage done by the institutional church, right? Whether that's from a distance, from far away, we've seen the church do some heinous and horrific things, Uh, but for so many of you, I know it's 
personal that churches and people in churches have done some heinous things. And so the question is, wait, uh, where is Jesus in the midst of all of this? What is the church? And the answer to that question is like the church is essentially Jesus among us. It is the risen and resurrected Jesus by the presence of his spirit who is still speaking and still acting among us as his people today. And so often the institutional story of the church and the story of Jesus are in conflict with one another. It's Juneteenth. This should be like painfully obvious to us this morning that the institutional church has had a hand in the oppression and objectification torture and rape and enslavement of human beings. And when we look at the history of our country, we ask where was the church? And we look at the history of our country and we ask where was Jesus? Those two answers are often not the same. The ongoing story of Jesus does not run parallel to the institutions that we call church. But that doesn't mean that Jesus isn't alive and active and working in the lives of people. And this morning, what I wanna show us is that what Jesus is offering is a radically inclusive hope. It's the tagline that you see on the seat back in front of you. It's the first thing you see when you go to our website. I want us to explore, like, why do we say that? What does that mean? Is it just like a cool, trendy, neato thing to say? Where is that actually coming from? And we get this bewildering and surprising and miraculous story that's just dumped into the middle of Acts in this weird way. And what we'll see with the story of the, uh, the eunuch is the profound, limitless inclusion of God's spirit. That the embrace of God is for all people, for all humanity, for all flesh, regardless of your gender, your culture, your language, the color of your skin, your political persuasion, your sexuality, like none of it is a barrier between you and the love of God. So I want us to hear this story again this morning. And I want us to listen to it, maybe with fresh ears, because I think sometimes we hear this story, some of our own like, not biases, but familiarity enters the story in some ways that prevent us from actually like going, whoa, what in the world's going on here? And so a little bit of background. Uh, so Luke has told us in the book of Acts that there's this council that has been like decided, hey, you guys are gonna help serve the poor. And then the very next thing is these people who are supposed to be waiting tables going off and doing these like crazy miraculous things. Philip is one of these people. Chapter eight is his chapter. He's gone into Samaria. And then the next thing he's going to do is encounter this eunuch. And the story is strange because there's like, it doesn't go anywhere. Like the eunuch doesn't show back up and be like, surprise, I was a key element to this story of the book of Acts. And Philip himself doesn't go anywhere. He kind of drops off the face of the earth. We'll briefly see him again in chapter 26, but he kind of disappears. And so one of the questions that scholars ask about this story is, wait, what is Luke doing with this? 
this is weird. It's this strange, surprising, miraculous story that has all of these like Old Testament allusions of Elijah and Isaiah and that there's just all this stuff built into it. Luke's up to something. So verse 26, chapter 8, uh, the text we have is out of the NRSV. We don't have a preferred text. All of them are good in some ways and bad in some ways. Um, choose the text that you like that's easy to read, that you feel like you will actually read and get something out of. But this morning we're in the RS, NRSV. So then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. This is the spirit, uh, or sorry, the angel of the Lord coming to Philip and saying, hey, go out into the middle of nowhere. Go down the road that goes to nowhere in the middle of the day. I got a job for you to do. This is a strange thing. So he got up and went. This sounds a lot like Jonah, by the way. The story of a prophet who's sent to a people, get up and go. So he got up and went, except Jonah goes the other way because of his racism, because of his exclusion, from his lack of wanting God to show grace to a people that he despises. And I think Luke wants us to hear some of that here. Verse 27, now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So one thing that jumps out in this story is is Luke spends like quite a bit of time talking about who this eunuch was. There's this series of descriptors that, that this person who in the book of Acts like just completely disappears gets like a lot of attention. And so who is this person well, first, they're an Ethiopian. And one of the things that we learn, um, there's a great resource on this, by the way, that I just want to shout out. This is not going anywhere. I found it fascinating. I want to get this and just explore it some more. There's a guy named Frank Snowden. He's an African-American scholar. He wrote a book called Blacks in Antiquity. And what he does is he, he looks at where were black human beings in ancient Greece and Rome, and, and how did people think of them? And what he concludes is shocking, He concludes that in the Greek and Roman and early Christian church, by and large, black people were seen without prejudice, without some sort of mysterious romanticism about like, oh, there's an other person that's mysterious, but also not in a derisive way that makes them somehow less than. They weren't seen as servants or slaves. They were seen as people. It's a novel idea. And I say that because that's important because when we hear Ethiopian, that phrase that that Luke is using is essentially the, the antiquities phrase, this person has dark skin. They're from that region that's on the edges of the Roman Empire down in Africa. It doesn't necessarily mean he was from Ethiopia. In fact, we find out because of Luke's description that he's a court official of the Candace This was a kingdom just south of Egypt, modern-day Sudan, and it was a powerful kingdom. This was not some small little podunk tribe. 
This is a kingdom that gave the Romans fits several times during the Roman Empire's history. This is a kingdom that was established well before Alexander the Great's empire and has continued on into the Roman Empire. This official is no small person. He carries some weight. He carries some like social significance. I wonder when we read Ethiopian eunuch, who's an official of Candace, if we hear it that way. I wonder if we see this person as an important person, part of a powerful and important kingdom. The important point to this story is that this high official, this person who's held in high regard in Roman and Greek culture is a eunuch. So even though he's got high social and political status, he's a eunuch who's come to Jerusalem to worship. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, if you know anything about first century worship in the temple, you know that that when this person showed up to enter the temple and worship the God that they were somehow and for some reason intrigued by, they weren't allowed in. Eunuchs don't get to enter the temple and worship. Gentile eunuchs especially don't get to enter the temple and worship. They would have been kept at arm's length out on the edges of the court uh, temple in the court of the Gentiles. Because of his Gentilism and because he was a eunuch, their standing prevents them from actually getting the required circumcision to even become Jewish. So not only, hey, you can't worship here because you're not one of us, you can never, ever, ever be one of us. There's no bridge you could cross. There's no thing you can do. You are not in the people of God and you never will be. Someone's gonna edit that clip and put it on the internet and it's gonna sound terrible, I'm so sorry. So any Gentile could practically become a proselyte. They could become Jewish if they would undergo circumcision and they would undergo baptism. You had to do these two things. You had to be baptized and you had to be circumcised. Well, he could get baptized, but the way that this works in the world of eunuchs, circumcision was not an option. And so this eunuch is very likely leaving Jerusalem disappointed. This important person, perhaps for the first time in their life, had been turned away. But maybe for the first time in this high official's world, they had been put at the bottom. And they're returning home. Verse 29, God shows up. The spirit said to Philip, go over to the chariot and join it. And so Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. And he asked him, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb silent before it shears, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, about whom may I ask you? Does the prophet say this? Is it about himself or someone else? 
Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. Right, so we've seen the identity of the eunuch. The eunuch is an outsider, uh, ostracized from the people of God, kept at arm's length, excluded from worship. And yet we see here something very obvious is happening both within the eunuch and on behalf of the eunuch. Right, so uh, Fleming Rutledge, one of my favorite theologians, has this phrase, like, we are drawn to God because God has first been drawn to us. Like, we begin to have some sort of delight and affection for God because God has already begun to stir the soil and the seeds of our heart. And so we can say with some confidence that the reason this eunuch was even interested in going to Jerusalem in the first place, the reason this eunuch was sitting there uh, fumbling over this scroll of Isaiah was that God had already began to work. And then God is going to do something on behalf of the eunuch in Philip. When he says, Philip, hey, go over there. And then Philip begins to proclaim the gospel to this outsider. God is up to something here. He takes Philip out in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the day where no one should be, pursue this person. And despite the eunuch's exclusion, God is not indifferent to them. In fact, it's the opposite. God is chasing the eunuch down in this profound and wild and incredible and impossible story because the Spirit of God always moves towards and in marginalized people. We see this from the Old Testament. We see this in the life of Jesus. We see this in the New Testament. We see this even at the end in the book of Revelation. The Spirit of God is always moving towards and active in the lives of marginalized people. Of course. Of course. How can we look at Jesus and hear his words and see his life and come to any other conclusion? Of course. The black church in America is a testament to this. If any people in our country should be able to say, forget the church, look what they did to me. And yet, So much, we owe so much to the black church that under oppression and imprisonment and uh, threat of violence and death persisted and pursued faith and hope. In fact, it was the black church that Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the famed German theologian, it's where he encountered the spirit of God in, in a lively and real way that gave him the impetus to go back and even do anything about what was going on in Nazi Germany. That it was not until he encountered the vibrancy of the spirit that was active in the church that he participated in in Harlem that he was able to confront that evil and stand up for the poor. I love the way that uh, Reverend Otis Moss III puts it, because I think it's a beautiful picture of the church, a beautiful picture of the spirit of God that is active in the lives of the marginalized. He says, never confuse position with power. 
Pharaoh had a position, but Moses had the power. Herod had a position, but John had the power. The cross had a position, but Jesus had the power. Lincoln had a position, but Douglas had the power. Woodrow Wilson had a position, but Ida B. Wells had the power. George Wallace had a position, but Rosa Parks had the power. Lyndon Baines Johnson had a position, but Martin Luther King had the power. We have the power. Don't you ever forget. Our position and our standing in society means squat in comparison to the power of the living, breathing fire of God's presence. Verse 36. As they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What's to prevent me from being baptized? And it's this question, this profound question that we might skip over. What's to prevent me from inclusion? What's to prevent me from becoming one of God's children? What's to prevent me from inclusion in the community of God and the embrace of God's people? And it's at this point, the story like speeds up. So much so that if you look closely in your Bibles, if you've got it in front of you, there is no verse 37. He told the story so fast, he forgot a verse. That's a Bible joke for those of you that went to Bible school. Just two of us in here, so it's cool. Right, and we can actually talk about why verse 37 is missing really quickly. Someone jumped in and was like, ah, this feels a little uncomfortable to me. They just baptized this guy. There was no profession. He didn't jump through. And so someone conveniently and helpfully added, but do you actually believe? Yes, I believe wholeheartedly. Cool, we can baptize you now, right? That's what's missing but, th- but that's exactly Luke's whole point, is this is happening so fast and so miraculously that they just run to the water and they baptize him. Verse 39, so when they came out of the water, or sorry, verse 38, my bad. He commanded the chariot to stop. Both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he was passing through the region, he proclaimed the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And he went on his way rejoicing. Do we have any doubt that the Spirit fell on this human being? Do we have any doubt that the Spirit of God indwelt this person? If you need some textual evidence for that, uh, them going on their way rejoicing is how Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 15, and Acts chapter 16 describe any Gentile after they have encountered the living Spirit of God. This is a prequel to what's about to happen in the rest of the book of Acts. This eunuch has just been given the Spirit of God. And it's here that we see inclusion is Spirit-led and Spirit-directed. It's not our good idea, and it's nothing that we can stand in the way of. That The Holy Spirit of God is an inclusive God, and He will include whomever He pleases. It's initiated by God, it's brought about by God, it's culminated by God. This is what we mean when we talk about grace. 
Right? Grace is not simply, ah, you're forgiven for some stuff. Grace is not simply, yeah, you've done some bad stuff, but we'll forget about that. Grace is the active, wild, alive work of Jesus in our hearts and in our midst that we can't conjure up on our own and we can't do anything to stop. It is the will of God working among us. And it is good news to all flesh. See, God doesn't need religious gatekeepers, right? The act of controlling or preventing access to something. We don't get to decide who's in and who's out. This is God's decision. This is God's choice. This is God's work, not ours. And so I wonder where you stand when you hear this story. I wonder this morning who you might be surprised to see God's spirit envelop in acceptance and in love. Right, if we're sitting at the feast of the kingdom of God, who might you be shocked or ashamed to be sitting across from? But maybe more than that, for so many of you in here, I wonder what has convinced you that you're an outsider. If for whatever reason, you're somehow on the outside of God's love What is it about you and your story that you think is beyond the power of God's redemption? Who told you that because of who you are or what you did or what you continue to do that God's keeping you at arm's length? This is not the way that Jesus has ever worked. And so I suspect very strongly that that it's not the way Jesus is working now, where Jesus appoints religious leaders to keep the right people in and the wrong people out. Sounds an awful lot like some people in the gospels that I know of, but it's not Jesus or his disciples. I I also wonder where we as a church might find ourselves if we began to follow the Spirit to the marginalized spaces and people around us. That if we would take a chance, take a risk of like losing some stuff, giving up some stuff, and actually following Jesus to some maybe scary places, different places, places that we aren't so sure about in our heads if it's okay or not, I wonder how God's radical inclusion might change the way we see the faces around us. How we might embrace in love and like real, actual inclusion those whose race, whose culture, whose gender, whose sexual orientation, whose political stance, whose vaccine status, (laughs) or whose past might be different from our own. I want to leave us with one final note, uh, kind of an abrupt ending to the morning, but uh, three thoughts that I have that I I want us to take away from encountering this story. There are a number of implications. I I think we could make a list of a hundred implications from this beautiful story. But one, like for us as a church, I want us to see that the story of Jesus among us is not a predominantly white story. 
It's not. It's never been and it never will be. Like, open up the word and see. It is not a predominantly white story. And so our story, right, whether the number of faces in here are mostly white or not mostly white, like, forget all of that. Our story can never be a predominantly white story. That even as white human beings, we must insist that our story is not their story. That their story matters to us as much as our own. Uh, One small way you can do this, right, is read, learn. There's a fantastic book out there called The Black Church. It's great. I picked it up this week. I can't put it down. It is fantastic. It is heartbreaking. It is inspiring. And maybe most of all, it is filled with the work of the Holy Spirit. We're going to offer some opportunities in the future to have more dialogue, conversation, and learning about how do we begin to, as a people, sort through this mess. Jesus is doing mighty and miraculous things around us and among us, we need to have eyes to see them and ears to hear them. Number two, because of this, we are and will continue to always be a radically inclusive church. And I'll just be really blunt with you, this has made a lot of people upset and they've left us over it. And I'll be even more blunt with you, it's made a lot of white people upset and they've left us over it. Friends, Brothers and sisters, and number three, and I say this with as as much humility as I possibly can conjure up. It's probably an oxymoron. Marginalized people and people of color, we need you. Like as a congregation here on 8915 Timberside, we need you. You matter to us as a congregation. Your lives matter, your history and your culture matter. You are what make Redemption Church, Redemption Church. This is not a community that we are inviting you into. This is your community. This is your church. I read an article this week um, about gentrification, which is actually completely beside the point. But there was this quip in there that I found particularly beautiful, and right, whether you agree with it or not, when it comes to gentrification, hear it in this context. I will completely rip it out of context and use it for these purposes. There's something about different sorts of people living close together that creates the potential for new ideas, subcultures, and new ways of being. Ephesians 2 makes this very clear. Jesus has united us together by his spirit as a family in him. We are his. And in this, we don't lose our distinctiveness. We don't lose our personhood. We don't lose our story. Instead, we gain the uniqueness of the stories around us. We gain the the rich heritage and beauty of our brothers and sisters, and we become a beautiful tapestry of God's love and inclusion. This is the church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your unceasing 
and relentless pursuit of those who are on the outside. Thank you for your relentless and unceasing pursuit of the marginalized, the poor, the disenfranchised, those who hold no particular power or persuasion, the least of those among us, will you open our eyes and soften our hearts to see them? Will you somehow miraculously make us a congregation and a church that really and actually embraces human beings because you care about them? I personally confess that I have a long way to go. I'm clinging to you and trusting that you'll continue to lead and guide and change me. I confess that I've not always gotten this right and I will probably screw it up again. Will you be merciful and patient with me? Above all, will you help me to love? Will you help me to see? Will you help me to embrace the way that you embrace? Will you do this for us as a church? We love you, Jesus. Thank you for the beautiful things you're doing among us. Thank you for the beautiful people that we get to share this life and this faith with. That's in your name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.